0: Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to this uh, pre-performance event before the sunken garden. I'm Christopher Cook and uh, I'm looking after it. Can we do house notices first? Um, Could you make certain that you've turned off your mobile phones, Uh, anything else in your pockets, handbags, wherever, that might whistle, sing or dance in perhaps inappropriate ways? Uh, Can I remind you, no cameras and no recording, but we are recording the event and it will be up on the English National Opera website as a podcast, so you can hear again the things that we listen to and we talk about this evening. <coughs> Second Garden is Michel von der Ahr's fourth piece of music theatre. If you were here at the Barbican, uh, I think two years ago now, maybe more, but you might have seen his afterlife, which was based upon a movie by the Japanese director, Hirokazu Koreeda, and that explored the idea of memory, and to an extent it also explored the idea of film for Michel van der Aa is a filmmaker and a writer as well as a composer and he brings all of these disciplines to his theatre work, including a taste for a pre-recorded soundtrack to be mixed with the live music played this evening in the pit by the Orchestra of English National Opera. The libretto for The Sunken Garden is not by Michel van der Aar, it's by David Mitchell, who devised the scenario and wrote the text. David Mitchell, as many of you will know, is a distinguished British novelist, he's written five novels, two of which have been uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize for Fiction, Number Nine Dream in 2001 and The Remarkable Cloud Atlas in 2004. The Sunken Garden, as a piece of theatre, is a kind of thriller that's also a ghost story. And because it's a thriller, whodunit if you like, and because it's also a story with ghosts, I'm not going to try and tell the complete story in order not to spoil the excitement. and I shall hope that we, between us, we shan't, as it were, take you away from the moment by the end where you are literally sitting on the edge of your seat at what has actually happened. What we can say is that it begins with Toby Kramer, who's a video artist, who's courted by an extraordinarily wealthy woman called Zena Briggs, who is, uh, has her own arts foundation with her husband, and we assume that she puts large amounts of money into artistic projects. Toby is currently working on a project about an an IT contractor called Simon Vines, who has mysteriously disappeared. Toby has already recorded interviews with Simon's ex-wife, his landlady, and his friend Sadaquat, who is a patient in a psychiatric clinic where he's cared for by a doctor called Iris Marinus. Then there's another disappearance, Amber Jacquemin. Satquart tells Toby that Dr. Marinus is implicated, he thinks, in these disappearances. That a hunter uses the dream of a hidden garden with a pool at its centre to trap the tormented and that, <coughs> and that is the sunken garden where the mystery, if you like, of the story unravels. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore the sunken garden. Franck von der Vey is the technical director of the show and he's going to join us in a while, as does the soprano, Claren McFadden, who sings the role of Iris Marinus, and she'll be sharing her ideas about this mysterious character, together with Murray Hipkin, who is the assistant conductor on this production of The Sunken Garden. But our first guest is Michel Art, the composer of The Sunken Garden. Will you please welcome Michel der <laughs> uh, Michel Michelle very simple question. How did this, the fourth of your music theatre pieces, come about? What's its genesis?
1: Um, I think it's... When I finished Afterlife, I I started looking for new ideas for new operas and and read a lot of books and um, um, watched a lot of films and, you know, trying to find the next subject. And I I think I was, for the first time, reading or for the second time reading Cloud Atlas Mm. and suddenly thought, this this is the guy. This Mm. is... um, someone who really knows how to balance uh, form on one hand and, and poetry and sort of n- very organic dialogue on the other hand. And um, I thought that would be a wonderful combination. Um, and uh, my publisher uh, emailed his agent and, f- to my big surprise, he e- emailed back and said, well, I've seen Afterlife and um, loved it and let's meet. And Is this
0: the first time that you've not written or not worked on your own libretto?
1: Uh, yes. Well, the, last, the, the Libretto for Afterlife was based on the film, sort of the text of the film, so I just sort of you know, edited that a little bit, so I, I definitely won't take any credit for that. Um, but this is the first time that someone has written a completely brand new Libretto for.
0: Quite difficult to give up, as it were, the total responsibility for mm. every detail.
1: It was quite, n- quite nice, actually, to, to, have, to have someone on board so early on to share, you know, to bounce ideas of each other and to... Sit down in a room and, and, and sort of discuss possibilities and, and ha- had a lot of fun doing so. He's a, he's a wonderful man, and a very kind and, 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 and generous man, and we had a great time. I think we met about 10 times and uh, worked on the Roberto together.
0: What were the qualities about his writing uh, that you particularly liked that you hoped he'd be able to bring to you for the piece?
1: Well, uh, the, th- the things I said earlier. I think he has a great sense for for structure and form. You know, as we see in Cloud Atlas, the sort of Russian puppet structure of the book. Um, but also, he writes very witty dialogue, which will and, and sort of monologues, which you will hear in the film as well. Um, there's there's a few documentary inserts in Toby Kramer's film that are quite, you know, witty and funny. Um, and um, I think he managed to write a text which still leaves room for the music to tell the rest of the story. So it's not a sort of hermetic, autonomous thing. It's really something which is quite sort of generous and, and, and leaves room for the music.
0: Those of us who were lucky enough to see Afterlife here uh, at the Barbican will remember that it was, in a way, about, about the space between life and death. -hmm. This sort of gap. In a way, this is another piece about about the space, the waiting space between two areas, isn't it? What do you like about these? To use the grand phrase, liminal spaces.
1: Um, It's. I think uh, it's an interesting moment when you when you're able to go back to life or move on to whatever whatever's next. I think it's an interesting moment because you can uh, look back. And there's no new memories to be, to be gained from that point. Uh, and in this opera, it's a quite a dangerous place because people are held there against their will, not wanting to give away too much of the plot. But <laughs> so it, it's, it, in Afterlife, it was a happy space, and in this opera, it's a slightly dark hmm. space.
0: And, and, and have you always been attracted to the idea of secret or hidden gardens? Is there something about the idea of a garden that you have to get to th- over a wall, through a gate, over a fence? Is, is there something you like about these spaces?
1: Uh, y- yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, depending what's there, of course. Yeah. But uh, it's a very, uh, you know, I think it's a very, um, you know, uh, um, how do you say, uh, iconic theme, I'd say. And, and very, uh, I think that it's always good to long for places uh, that you can't very easily get to and
0: uh, sometimes th- these gardens can, of course, be versions of Eden or the classical golden age. They can be moments of perfection, but they're also often places of terror. Aren't
1: yeah, they? yeah. One only knows w- when one's in there, I think, and that's that's one of the exciting things. And that's the same for this sunken mm-hmm. garden.
0: I, I just wondered whether you had liked when you were smaller, um, and perhaps still like. Um, Lewis Carroll's Alice through the Looking Glass, because that has this sense of another world through it. I, I sense through a lot of this piece.
1: Yeah, now of course everybody uh, uh, loves the book. Um, I think we, we talked a lot about uh, about um, you know wh- when we when we thought of making this place between heaven and earth, this day and night. How can we do that on stage? And uh, one of the ideas was of course film, and then came the idea to use three D film. So the, the use of three D film really is embedded in the in the DNA of the libretto, which was it's very important to me. I don't wanna hmm. smack film on an opera just to entertain people. It should really um, be a sort of an essential tool to tell the story and, and, and sort of an extension of my music. That's really interesting. Is that because
0: when we do get to the three D, when we put our glasses on, when we enter under the underpasses, it tells us firmly with our glasses. Is that because in a way there is something strange and other about 3D? I mean, no one should pretend 3D is actually like the world at all. It's another sort of visual experience. Is that what you were looking
1: for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, we even... We, we pretty much made clear from the beginning that we don't try and mimic a, a, a realistic space. It's, 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 it's a very sort of saturated, extended... Um, idea of reality, and, and, and we can
0: see it on the screens yeah. um, to, to, the, to the side. I mean, this is the garden with the pool. Um, yeah. Had you you've not used three D before, have you? No, no. How difficult? How easy was it as a filmmaker? It was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> we,
1: we had a lot of te- we did a lot of testing. We worked with a sort of scaled model and, and uh, a live three D camera set, and had little puppets with the heads of the singers. Um, uh, little head of Claren and Roddy and, uh, and Kate and, um, and just tried things, and we, we found out the hard, you know, the hard way that some things work and some things don 't work. so we were very well prepared when we started to shoot the film, mm-hmm. but even then so, um, we were lucky enough to have to be able to set up the full um, set in our rehearsal space, mm-hmm. and then uh, we did a lot of tweaks in the film uh, to make sure that things matched in terms of scale and In the beginning the singers were little midgets behind the real singers or giants and we had to really rescale everything and make sure the perspective was right and um, so it was a lot of work but but fun and and did you have to teach
0: yourself not only i mean how to make these things work but teach yourself a new way of making films
1: yes because um what we do in this opera is, is the film um actually with 3d film you can actually um objects in front of the screen as you know. Um, so we, we literally extend the stage to the rear but also to the front. So singers, sometimes there are trees sticking out over singers, over the live singers or there's water splashes going past the singers. Into so the audience Into too. the audience, yeah. Um, so there that's, that's, that was a whole new way of, of, of working with the spacing on stage. Because the trouble with 3D is when you, when you walk left and right, the, the image moves with you. Um, so some a lot of the discussions with the singers was, well, you're in a plant now, you're in a 3D plant, so please move one meter to the side. <laughs> um, and then at another place in the hall, they were in the plant again, so it was trying to find out these safe zones where they could walk and, and we could use all the perspectives. So it was a very interesting way of looking at the, at the dimension of the, spe- of the physical stage.
0: You're a filmmaker, you're a writer. And of course, you are a composer, and I wonder where the emphasis in your in your in your life falls between those three activities. I'm, I'm
1: certainly not a writer. I'm a but I bless you, but I really see myself as a composer f- first and foremost, and um, I trained myself to be a director. And uh, but music, uh, I mean, all my visual ideas come from the music. So music is there as a starting point, and from there I extend the vocabulary with, you know, with film or staging or scenography.
0: Let's go through the process then. So, You and David have, have, have finally arrived at a text that you, you like. What happens next?
1: Um, uh, well, two years of sitting behind my desk and um, writing music. And not only writing music, but um, what, you know, uh, for each of the areas I was composing, I, I, I not only had to think about what is the pitch that the singer is going to sing, but also what is happening. Is something happening in film? And how does it interact with the live singing? And, and what's happening on stage? So there's these three layers that constantly um, were in my mind and, and already I made quite a few sort of bigger decisions about that while composing the piece. Um, and for each of the scenes I could determine, I mean is film now more important or the music or the staging and, and change the background and foreground all the time.
0: You actually lay it out as a kind of yeah. huge score in which you've got, as it were, the, the film at one, then then the yeah. music at so on. And, uh, is that something you had to devise for yourself that kind of way yeah, of imitating it? Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's the first thing I did. When I had the libretto, I made a, a big timeline, which is about as big as the white wall there, and there's A4 papers stuck onto my wall, and then there was this very little tiny bit in the middle uh, that I started to compose, and I uh, had quite a few nightmares there. Because I knew I had to fill that whole timeline, and suddenly all the little blocks start appearing, and the li- the larger lines, you know, start to happen. But I always had that. I always have this, this yeah this uh, overview of. And there's another
0: line, which is presumably the line of material generated and recorded on the, on the laptop, on the computer, yeah. the digital material. Tell us what that is. Is that simply effects or is it also music as well?
1: It's music. Um, uh, the, the, the same way I use film to extend my ideas, I also use electronic sounds, uh, sort of manipulated sounds of the orchestra and sometimes of the voice to extend the sound palette of the orchestra. So, for example, they could pl- play a chord and the chord stops, that in the air, and, the, and then the reverb of the chord happens in the soundtrack. Um, or um had yeah, this all kind of rhythmical interplay between the, the electronic sounds and the percussionist. And so there's, there's a, it's really an extra dimension to the music that
0: I use. And is this all carefully planned, or is, uh, is, is there an element of chance or choice? in each performance for the relationship between what's pre-recorded and what the orchestra is doing in the painting? Uh,
1: it's carefully planned, yes. Uh, having said that, sometimes things go different than you <laughs> expect, <laughs> so there's always that element, but um, no, yeah, carefully planned.
0: And Is the material that you've, you're working with on the, on the laptop, is this material that has grown out of earlier performances or is it pre-recorded material that you've sampled and, and, and worked with?
1: Uh, pre-recorded, yeah.
0: So you have a whole kind of scissor studio sessions yeah, um, yeah. before you get there. How
1: long does all that take? This is all part of that sort of two-year writing period. Um, and w- once I finished the score, we, we started shooting the film at, at the wonderful Eden Project, for example, uh, where you see the very lush garden that's all filmed in Cornwall. Um, and then there was the, the editing, which I, I, I did myself, and, and there was a wonderful company in Amsterdam who did all the special effects. Um, so I haven't been bored.
0: A <laughs> uh, Last question. In terms of your own music, who've been the k- kind of key influences on you as a composer? Whose music do you, as it were, hear sometimes in your ear that belongs to you?
1: It's a very strange mix uh, between um, Bach, of course. Um, you know, uh, uh, Stravinsky, uh, uh, Stockhausen, Radiohead, um, Avex Twin. Ligeti? Miles Davis, Ligeti, definitely. It's, so it's a, very, it's a very mixed. I mean, I love, I'm a real omnivore. I love everything from world music to jazz to dance music to uh, hardcore contemporary, everything in between.
0: And, 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 and do you sometimes have to stop yourself with this extraordinary kind of, as it were, palette of music that you like um, and find your own voice again? Are there moments when you have to think, where is, is, is me here?
1: Well, I, I, I do think they all go th- to this... Um, what's the word in English? Uh, um, the Funnel? Yes. Filter, filter. Filter, yes. And they end up being, you know, uh, that's at, at least what people tell me, that they, they, they end up sounding like my music again. And, but there are definitely elements in there. And also in this opera, there's um, the songs I wrote for Amber, for Kate Miller-Heidke are quite, uh, you know, up-tempo and poppy. And there are more abstracts of soundscape. Moments and, and everything in between, really.
0: There's also a, a lyric impulse that seems to have always been there, that you, uh, a real sense of kind of almost pause in which you produce these extraordinary beautiful melodies. Well, thank you. I think. Uh, yes. And there's a long extended one in the second half of this, uh, in Afterlife, there was there as well. Michel, thank you very much. Stay with us, because yes. there'll be a chance for the audience to talk to us. Um, we're going to be joined now by the soprano, Claren McFadden, who sings the role of Iris Marinus. And also with us is Mary Hipkin, the assistant conductor of The Sunken Garden, and a member, of course, of the music staff here at Eno. Could you welcome, first, Claren McFadden, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the character she sings. <laughs> So, tell us, without giving too much away, who the woman we've been looking at in the red coat with a chunky jewellery called Iris Marinus is.
2: Yes. Uh, the, um, Iris Marinus. she's, um, what it, she's a, a supernatural, being in her 39th or 38th uh, reincarnation. So she's someone who basically can't die. Um, she says herself uh, that when she is in the dusk, moving towards the light or the dark, as you were, there's always something that pulls her back and she's reborn in the body of a, a child. Um, she says herself mainly in in areas of the world that, that, that are kind of, I don't want to say up and coming, but that are sort of hotspots. So she's almost like a supernatural zeitgeist, you know? Um, so she is reincarnated in, in, in Asia, uh, in, in India, in the Middle East, and because she, in a way, wants to help people. She's always in the... In the in re- or grows up to be a kind of healer. So in this, she's a psychiatrist. When we first the though,
0: she may be a psychiatrist, but she's also possibly the villainess of the piece. Yes. Because she appears to be trading in human souls. <laughs> so you have to confuse us at the beginning.
2: Yes, yes, I try very hard with the look, as we call it.
0: Well, what for you is the challenge of this role?
2: Um, well, there there are several challenges. I mean, uh, what is really wonderful but challenging is having a living and breathing composer who asks you, how should I write it for you? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? And then you think, well, um, I'd like to be able to go out on the weekends. I'd like to actually have a challenge. I'd like to be able So you sort of basically have an Armani role made for you, you know. Yeah. It, it, it <laughs> stitches it on you. And then, so it's a responsibility to actually say, what you can do, what is difficult, and, and there's this dialogue, so that's very exciting. And also to give the, the, the character the, the proper dramatic line, so that from the beginning till the end of the piece there's a kind of growth.
0: So, so the way you feel that, that, that Michel has tailored this around your vocal gifts. It really does match what you can do.
2: Yes, yeah, so and he pushes me a little bit as well. So. <laughs> give me the example of the pushy. <laughs> I mean, I sort of describe my voice a little bit like Sophia Loren's body, let's put it. It's a wonderful memory of <laughs> <in> the movie. <laughs> we we'll talk about a voice. voice. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bottom is quite full, and like where I'm speaking now is quite strong, and then there's a kind of waist that's less strong, and then it sort of gets higher up as you go. And so he wrote some very interesting things right in the waist line that, that are very, very <laughs> important... Uh, text, so then it's just this challenge of finding a way of, of making it clear to the audience, giving it the right colour if it's a, something a, that's quite authoritative but it's in a part of the voice that's maybe less strong, mm. how do you then give it a colour so it has the same weight as if it were in the D cup or whatever you want to put it
0: <laughs> I, I think we should need that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're, we're going to
0: abandon you, uh, Michelle, because you're going to sing for us. Just tell me what you're going to see.
2: Uh, this is uh, the moment where um, Dr. Marinus th- it challenges the, the, the victims that were in the garden to make the choice between life or death. And she's basically saying we sign a contract uh, before we're even born with a man and a woman we've never met. And she basically describes the terms of the contract uh, with her. Yeah.
0: No piano, no musicians who going to sing
2: with my virtual colleagues, yes. Virtual
1: colleagues. <laughs> and it's good to know that uh, you hear voices of uh, two of the singers on uh, on the soundtrack, and this afternoon you'll see them in the 3D film. So you know, it's a, it's a quintet actually. So uh, yes. mm-hmm. these voices will have faces tonight in the on the film.
0: A quintet. We'll leave thank you to do. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. We're also joined now, come and join us on the stage, Taryn, why not? Come and have a seat. And, and we're also joined now by Murray Hipkin, who is the assistant conductor of this production here at the Barbecue. Um, Murray, I want to start really by asking you a very simple question. When you first opened the score, which you have in your hand, what was your first reaction? To the
3: piece? Well, the first reaction was that i have never had a score with um, quite so many pictures in it. <laughs> I can't find any other. There's one, don't so all the way along, it's got these little just to make sure you're in the right place, I suppose. But um, haven't got over that. Um, I think I, because it was the first time I've ever worked on anything quite like this. I mean, the first time I think anyone had ever worked on anything quite like this, and we had no idea what to expect. So this was two weeks before uh, we started rehearsals. There was there was a bit of a panic going on, thinking how on earth are we going to play this on the piano? Because that's one of the Things I have to do, and there is no piano reduction. But it, it, it gradually became clear that um, we would be rehearsing to the same track that you just heard uh, Clarence singing to. So that was one less thing to do. And of course, I ended up playing the laptop in, in rehearsal rather than the piano. <laughs> um, and it's got the letters on the keys, it's a bit easier, I think. <laughs> but um, but th- there, were, there were all these unknowns. And of course, on the very first day, we, we were all suddenly much more relaxed about it because Michelle t- and Frank and everyone turned up and suddenly realised we didn't have to worry about any of that. Um, but I think, yes, my first impression was, you know, it uh, was, was 100 questions about coordination and all that kind of thing. Very uh, I think someone may have a hearing aid that's giving us a little chorus oh, moment. It's little oh, moment. it's oh. the
0: fire. Oh. Oh.
4: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this time, I'm saying I'm going to have to evacuate out into the water. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying <sent. laughs> oh <my God. laughs>